And welcome again to another show, another episode of the Robert Barham Show. I am Robert Barham, and today we definitely have another wonderful guest, a longtime friend of mine who actually is living on the same coast as me again, Mr. Brian Mallow, science comedian, is here. Hey, Brian, how you doing? Hey, now can, can, do I call you Doc or Robert? I know you as Doc. That's right. You do know me as Doc. And you're RobertDocBarham.com. That's right. You can actually, you're free to choose either one. I I don't have any, as we're in the kind of near the South, so I don't have any. I'll go with Mr. Barham. (laughs) (laughs) We spend an hour calling each other Mr. Mallow and Mr. Yes. (laughs) We never get any closer. It sounds like a phone call. We're socially distancing, even with people we were once closer to. (laughs) (laughs) In name as well. It sounds like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Mr. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good to talk to you again, Brian. You yeah. Actually, you and I first met, I want to just sort of back up real quick and give a little bit of a yeah. you so that the uh, the listeners know who you are and what you're all about. You are- I can't wait to find out. Who am I? What am I about? That is the big question for you and everybody else here. Maybe I will know at the end of this hour. <laughs> you and I met first, was it in San Francisco? Yeah, I think so. Now, you're not originally from San Francisco. You're actually, nope. nor am I. I'm originally from the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia, and you are from the Houston. Where are you? Well, I was born in Chicago, but I was about five when we moved to Texas. Wasn't my choice. I didn't have much influence on that decision, but born in Chicago, raised in Texas. And I grew up in Houston mostly. And then I went to college in Austin at the University of Texas. And it was in Austin that I started my comedy career. Austin, okay. What and so I love Austin. And in some ways, I mean, Houston's my hometown. I, I Third grade through high school, I grew up in Houston. But those college years, and then I stay, after college, I stayed in Austin. So I lived in Austin about 12 years. Started my comedy career. Ultimately, I would move to Los Angeles briefly and then up to San Francisco. Oh, I, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know you went to LA for a while. Just three years in L.A., I wasn't ready. You know what? I wish when I moved to L.A., I should have moved to San Francisco. I wasn't ready for L.A. I don't even know if I'm ready for L.A. now, but I should have moved to San Francisco to develop more at that time. Um, It wasn't right. For me, at the time, I wasn't headlining everywhere. I was a middle act uh, uh, most often. And because of that, I lived in LA, but I had to be on the road all the time. And it, it doesn't make that much sense to be in Los Angeles to try to make something happen if you always have to be out on the road to make money. Um, I wasn't ready to be in Los Angeles. Yeah, it certainly makes it difficult if you're on the road all the time and you live in LA. But now, I, um, I moved to San Francisco because I've been doing stand-up comedy out of the East Coast, and I wanted to get to the West Coast. And I'd consider moving to New York City but I went up there, I shot a television show for Comedy Central, and I decided that if I had a preference, that I'd prefer to go to the West Coast, preferably somewhere like Los Angeles. But some of my comedy friends, guys who, uh, uh, guys who actually lived in San Francisco too, but didn't start out there, like Blaine Kapatch and Patton Oswalt and some of the other guys, I think Jeff Hatz too, those guys were like, hey, man, you should come out to San Francisco. It's really a, a wonderful town for stand-up comedy. And that ultimately is what kind of brought me out there, that and the desire to 
for me, in my mind, San Francisco was a bit like the on-deck circle before you showed up in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's why I wish I had moved there first. What year did you move to San Francisco? Uh, you know, it, I know it was in the 90s, but I don't remember the exact... I it, moved to San Francisco in 95, and I don't remember... But that's we met sometime probably in the mid to late 90s there in San Francisco. We may have both shown up uh, about the same time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you moved out. What what was it that brought you? Uh, you know all the decisions you well. Did, first of all, why did you decide to go to San Francisco for stand up? Yeah, let me tell you this. First of all, when I when I had a when I was living in Austin, I uh, my comedian friend and roommate Tom Hester and I decided to move to Los Angeles. We moved to Los Angeles in 1992. We were we drove from we drove we both had little Hondas. We packed up all our stuff, and with all our possessions loaded in our little cars, we drove to Los Angeles, and we arrived right after the verdict in the Rodney King trial came out, and there were riots and stuff. Los Angeles was going crazy, and we were arriving with all our possessions in our car, and uh, it was a very weird time, and there was sort of a... It was a weird time to just to, to come to... to to Los Angeles. But like I said, I spent about three years there. So that would have been 1992? 92. Okay. And it was interesting and fun. And, and, you know, one of my old good comedy friends was Mitch Hedberg. And we both, I think we had become friends. We met on the road around then or just before it. And then we were both living in Los Angeles. And, and then this was a time when he was one of my best friends and we used to hang out together a lot in LA. So LA, there was a lot of great stuff about it. And a lot of people I knew there who had moved there from other cities, but I didn't get much going on, but I went up to San Francisco one year and I did the San Francisco international comedy competition. And I didn't do well in the competition, but I'm, I got a great dose of the Bay area. I met a lot of interesting people. Uh, I don't know if that's how I met Blaine, but there were certain just people that I, I went up to San Francisco in addition to the competition where you get to perform maybe seven or eight shows through the course of a week in different venues. And then in subsequent visits, I'd come back to San Francisco a couple times and some, a, a local booker um, uh, would got, got me some work and um I would come to the clubs and people were very nice to me. So when I was thinking, all of a sudden I was like, you know, in San Francisco, there were a bunch, there, there were several full-time comedy clubs that you could work and make money while you're in town. It's a weird thing in some cities, you know, when you're a comic, there's only so much work in your hometown. So you have to be on the road to make money. And especially in Los Angeles, yeah. it, there's not much of that. There's little showcase sets where you get a few bucks, like in New York and LA, but San Francisco had clubs where you could work a full week and get paid for a week of work and be in town. So yeah, like you would, um, if you were on, yeah. the road, you'd go on the road, unfortunately, the timing was such that when I moved there, that stuff started to fade in those subsequent years. But I really liked San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco. I ended up moving in with two other comedians, Kevin Kataoka and Jim Short. Uh -huh. We all became roommates um, along with Kevin's girlfriend, Beth, uh, at the time. Oh, and fun. so we, uh, yeah, that started a long time. I ended up spending 17 years in San Francisco from 1995 
until I moved to Raleigh in 2012. Oh, okay. So now I moved out there, right? Not it, probably right around the same time that you did. And I was in Haight Ashbury, and I mm-hmm. was when you and I met, and um, and then you and I worked together on the road at least at least one time. So you went from LA to San Francisco, and now you are firmly ensconced in in Raleigh. Yeah, you know what? We all got me and Jim Short and Kevin Katsuoka, we all got an apartment together in the outer sunset at 41st Avenue, um, near right next to Golden Gate Park and very close to the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, that is. And, but before we settled on a place, we were all crashing at Kevin's place in Berkeley. And I once got a call from Pat Oswalt and when, when I was moving in 95, Patton and Blaine Kapach were writing partners and they had just gotten a job on Mad TV. Right. And this would have been early in their writing careers. And they moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles. To Los Angeles. And Patton contacted me because he still had one month left on his lease and he heard that I was there. And the last month of his lease, I sub let his, his apartment in the hate uh him and blaine had an apartment on on hate uh not just off hate street just off one block up off hate street and uh so for one month uh and jim came and crashed there with me too we uh uh sublet pat oswald's apartment i sublet the apartment and i let jim crash with me uh, <laughs> yeah and then we all and then it took us a while for three starving artists and a girlfriend of one, um, uh, it was hard for us to find a sufficient three-bedroom apartment. So it took us a while. So I rented Patton's apartment. Then we all lived together. And yeah. Nice. So now you keep in touch with the, some of those guys still to this day? I mean, obviously. Yeah, a little bit. Mitch is no longer alive, obviously. But yeah. I remember working with Mitch. He's such a funny guy. But certainly uh, Patton and Blaine and... Uh, Kevin and Jim, they're all alive. Do you keep in touch with any of those guys? You know, I like all of them. And uh, Blaine and Patton, uh, I really like them. I don't keep in touch with them much. Although Blaine, even more than Patton, I see on Twitter all the time. He is such a funny writer. And and he's also, he's a brilliant comedian. He's done a great job writing for TV shows. But it's a completely other thing. He's really good at Twitter. He's really good at writing succinct little tweets that are they're jokes and they're short and they're just perfect for Twitter. He's very funny on Twitter. Yeah, uh, and I think Patton probably is too, but it just seems like, you know, that weird thing. I follow them both, but Patton always shows up in my stream. I mean, Blaine always shows up in my stream. Oh. Uh, and I find his, he's just hilarious. Um, and yeah, Jim Short and Kevin Katsuoka, I'm still friendly with. Um, we all live in different places. And Jim right now is back in Australia. Um, where he's originally from and where his family is. Uh, and Kevin is in Los Angeles, um, and we keep in touch. Yeah, sure. I like all those guys. Now you're, but you are in Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina, which is actually a wonderful town for stand-up comedy in, uh, in a lot of ways. They have the, uh, down there is a, uh, uh, Charlie Goodnight's. Yeah, it's just called Good Nights now, but it was for many years, it was Charlie Good Nights, and all the comedians that know it uh, still call it Charlie Good Nights, but it's just called Good Nights now. And, uh, but that was back in the days when there were comedy clubs and people used to congregate in groups 
um, in person, not not like Zoom calls. <laughs> I, I'm talking people use. It was a dark time when people would gather together just to listen to someone tell jokes on a stage and sit right next to total strangers who aren't even vaccinated. So it was a dark time. So what brings you? What what brought you to Raleigh? I mean, one of the things I want to make sure that we we get to today is that as long as I've known you, even back when I mean, you've been involved in like technical stuff. You lo- you really like kind of tech stuff and science and all of that kind of stuff. Like I even remember way back in San Francisco, you were doing a you did a show for a while called But Seriously, and that was I mean that was a many years ago, and you were using that was back then to do a show that was on the web and it was really something 20 years ago. It was in 1999 and 2000. It was before podcasting. It was before there was really much video on the web. In fact, it was exactly when a lot of flash animation was hitting the web and a lot of flash shows. Like there were all these well-funded startups that were putting out flash cartoons that were made in, in flash. And it was at 99 and 2000, a lot of that was popping up. And I got, there was a tech company, they were called Play Incorporated, and they had a network called Play TV. And there were six shows. And one was this guy, Alex Bennett, who was a longtime radio broadcaster, previously in New York. He was a big force in San Francisco radio. And he used to feature comedians on his show all the time. So he had a very popular show in San Francisco. And at this point in 99 and 2000, he was doing a live streaming video talk show. And I came on as the sixth and final show on that network. And I did a two-hour show like this, live streaming video from an apartment, but it was dedicated and made into a studio. It was pretty neat tech. It's amazing how far we've come where now you can do live streaming you know, video from a phone, this was still much more affordable than a regular TV station. And I did 300 episodes. I did a year and a half of a five days a week talk show. And I interviewed a ton of scientists. It was called But Seriously with Brian Mallow. And I interviewed authors, comedians. I had, you were on the show, weren't you? I was on the show. Yeah. yeah at least once. As a um, guest on your show. And I had some other comedians like, Greg Proops and Brian Regan and Rick Overton and Jim Short and Kevin Katoka. I never had Blaine or Patton. Um, Tom Rhodes. Uh-huh. Um, quite, I had a lot of comedians and I had a lot of authors and scientists. And so I enjoy interviewing people and I enjoy interviewing scientists. And I'm glad you brought all, so all this up, uh, my interest in science, we can get into that a little more. But what happened is, because it feeds into that question you just asked about how I ended up in Raleigh, it's because of all these things. Um, At some point, I realized that a lot of my comedy was kind of geeky and science geeky. And some of my favorite jokes weren't ideal for a nightclub audience, unless there was like a critical mass of geeks or scientists or something in the audience. And then I could pull out some of my favorite geekiest jokes and they would work really well. And I, so, so here's the way I say it humorously sometimes is I realized that I had to find the complimentary audience to my act, the adenine to my thymine, the guanine to my cytosine. 
if you will. <laughs> that's a that's a science joke. Um, DNA. Um, <laughs> so what happened is at some point along the way, I came up with the phrase science comedian. And when I looked for sciencecomedian.com, it was available, which two words, two science comedians spelled correctly in the .com 10 or 12 years ago. Um, to find that in the .com, I was like, the fact that it was available, either that was a really good sign or a really bad sign, <laughs> like it's useless real estate. Two words like that, which are, are common usage words, that that's some pretty good real estate in the domain. Yeah, so what happened is I was like, oh, Science comedian. I got sciencecomedian.com and then I'm science comedian. Let me go ahead and make that plug. I'm on Instagram <laughs> and Twitter and YouTube and science comedian and on Facebook. I that became my handle and it really defined what I was doing. And the funny thing is, it wasn't a calculated thing. It's like I shall be the science comedian. What it was, a friend of mine, John O'Connell, another comedian, uh 10, you know, like some years later, he was like we all knew you were the science comedian all the way back in Austin, you know, even years, 10 years earlier. And it just took so long for it to crystallize that way. I was always kind of geeky, but suddenly when I would go, Oh, science comedian. Oh, it's not what I want to be. It's what I'm already doing. If I just cut away some of the other stuff and it's not even like all my jokes are about science. Sometimes it's very absurd. It's just taking the language and metaphors and stuff from science and, Sure. Some stuff might be educational. Other stuff is just silliness. I used to be an astronomer, but I got stuck on the day shift, which sucks. You know, <laughs> that's simple and short and quotable. But uh, it's like, you're not going to learn anything. It's just geeky. Sure. My, my, my girlfriend, uh, people used to say we look like a couple. And I think it's because she, she was the right height for me. She was a lot shorter than me. In fact, the first time I saw her, I thought she was farther away than she actually was. <laughs> it's like that. Now that's kind of a sign, but others are like even more peripheral. Like, like I'm just talking about a subject, but then I bring in an analogy from science or something. So I have a broad definition of what science comedy means. And, uh, okay. So I became the science comedian. It's like, Oh, okay. And I also started getting work more often you know, comics do, there's sort of three general categories of work. We do nightclubs. That's the classic. Nightclubs and then theaters if you if you get bigger. And then you do colleges and everything else is called a corporate gig, which could be for an actual corporation. It could be for a nonprofit, any private party. We just call that a corporate gig. So I used to mostly do comedy clubs and you do some colleges and corporate gigs. Well, then it started to shift to where I started getting more work at colleges and corporate gigs, like science organizations, I was the perfect comedian for their conference, back when humans used to gather together for conferences in person, not a Zoom conference. Way, I mean- A little scientific fact. Did you know that the, they're, they're six foot social distancing, do you know six feet, that the word six feet, six feet is a fathom, and that the Saxon word for fathom is fatum, F-A-E-T-M, Guess what it means? It means embrace. <laughs> a fathom is only six feet. So when you hear about like, yeah, like Mark that term, it's only six feet. I believe marking Twain. Mark Twain is at twelve feet. It's two fathoms. I find that hard to fathom. <laughs> um, hey, that's not an example of my humor. Don't turn off your the show just now. From a video sense, we are actually less than six feet away from one another. Right. <laughs> and yet. So, um, 
my career started morphing and it also morphed in another way. I started being asked if I do well, okay, so I have a video background too. Um, you know what? There's a keynote that Steve Jobs gave at Stanford University, and it's about a 20-minute speech, and it's a pretty good little keynote. Uh, one of the things he says is really interesting to me. He said something about connecting the dots. When you look back at your life, and I'll preface this by saying I'm not new agey or mystical or anything, but I do think this is interesting. He said something about the fact that, for instance, he dropped out of Stanford and he audited classes he, since he was no longer on a, a plan, he could take whatever he wanted. And he decided to take a calligraphy class for no practical reason. But later, when they were developing the, the first Mac, his knowledge of fonts and calligraphy fed into some specific design issues of how they made fonts for the Mac, which would later get copied by Windows. And now that that class that he randomly took in calligraphy for no real reason ended up influencing how fonts are on personal computers all around the world. Global effect. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting. And it's like looking how like stepping stones, like I, I don't believe there's a certain a path, but it is interesting that as a kid, I was, I was interested in comedy, but I was more interested in science. I was interested in both and where they intersected like Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov, who's best known as a science fiction writer, many people may not realize, he wrote more nonfiction. He wrote more science writing, explaining science in every discipline of science. He wrote more nonfiction than science fiction. And I went from his science fiction to his nonfiction, and I learned about science, and he wrote with personality, and he wrote with humor. And I would say that he was a bigger influence on my sensibilities he was very rational and he could explain things without losing you. He could take you to a complex place without losing you. Uh -huh. Like he never, you know, usually if you read a science book, you get to a part where it's like, you lost me. And it's a, it's a, a fail. What we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> and um, Asimov was just brilliant at it. And he was funny too. And so I think George Carlin and some others were influences on me, but, as when I was young, I really liked science and science fiction. Um, I wrote songs with a friend, and that was an interest. Did not pursue science. Went to college. Then I went to graduate school, and I learned video skills. I went into TV production at the University of Texas in Austin. Oh, okay. While I was learning video production skills, I tried the Funniest Person in Austin contest. I was ready to try stand-up. And then I left video behind. So what happens is I become a comedian, but at a certain point, I had an opportunity to make science videos for Time Magazine. And this was before I was officially the science comedian. So I made science videos at Time. Then I became, the, then I named, called myself, then I got that science comedian label. And then people started asking me, if I do any training of scientists, because they had seen my videos where I explained some science and they'd seen my stand-up. And that became a thing. I started giving talks to help scientists be better public communicators. So all of that is how I ended up in Raleigh. It's like I was the science comedian. I was doing other science communication stuff. I was starting to become interested in the communication of science to the general audience. 
And, and I'm the general audience because I'm not a scientist. Um, you seem like you have a, you're at a, a, a unique nexus, which is you. And it's the combination of your, your passions that you are really well versed in. You, it, I mean, you just explained, right? Like you're in Raleigh and you've had this lifelong passion for science and for technology in a sense, particularly in this audio video technology, right? And film and television and uh, a real passion for humor and comedy. And you've been able to take those things and place them together in a kind of a, in a pot and um, alchemically bring them all together into what you're doing today. And because you are doing yeah. some really interesting things um, in addition to comedy and speaking and that kind of thing. You've been talking to a lot of scientists over a lot of years. What a, um, I, let, let me, can I, I'm sorry to, to interrupt your flow, but the, the, the crucial piece, what happened is a, a science museum here in Raleigh I had always been a freelancer, but a science museum here in Raleigh was opening a brand new wing with a science communication emphasis. And they reached out to me, people I knew, and I ended up moving to Raleigh to work at a science museum. And my job was to host talks by scientists. Ah. And yeah, and to help them be better communicators. But there is this, I wish I had a, an image of this. Maybe I can send you an image. The, the, Daily, Plan- the uh, Daily Planet is this giant globe-shaped theater. So on the outside of this museum is a giant earth. Inside it, it's a theater. And I hosted talks by scientists. Uh, we did video stuff. I helped them be better communicators. So I moved from San Francisco to Raleigh. Whoever imagined moving yeah, to North Carolina. It? Really? To move. Like Superman's. Like exactly. Superman's. Yeah. Not really. I mean, they haven't, you know, there's been no lawsuits or anything. But, um, <laughs> but that was in 2012. I moved to Raleigh and I did that for about four years. I still was doing other science communication stuff and I blogged for Scientific American because again, I was getting more and more into the science communication world. So I still have all my comedy friends, but I wasn't in the nightclubs as much. Instead, I'm going to science conferences and, and then I worked at a museum with a research staff that I became very close with and they were my colleagues and friends and then I really got to know scientists because I was working with them sci- like for four years on a daily basis. So not just going to a conference, but working with them. And I, so I learned so much more about scientists and their world. And then I quit just because there was other stuff I wanted to do. I had never seen it as my whole career to come work at this state museum. I saw how it fit in to my career. It was, it was an awesome experience. I learned a lot and had just great times, made a lot of friends. But now there's other stuff I want to do in comedy and science and the science comedy, the science communication. So that's all to say that um, that also prepared me so that, yeah, where I am right now, the reason I mentioned the Steve Jobs thing is that my job now, comedy, science, science communication, um, and video skills, like making science videos for time and for other people and interviewing scientists, all those things come together in what I'm doing now. So what, what is the, what is the, you, you, like you said, you've been interviewing lots of scientists and, and you're at a, at least I said, you're, you're kind of a nexus in a, in a certain, it's a, many of these things coming together. What is the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting. What is 
So the Lindau, it's L-I-N-D-A-U. It's this, it's a town in Germany. It's this little like maybe sort of medieval quaint little tourist town in very Southern Germany. It's really close to Zurich, Switzerland. In fact, I would fly into Zurich and take a train to get to Lindau. And it's mostly a little island. And for about 70 years, 70 years, the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting has been going on and it's grown to the extent that this is what it is. Every summer for about a week, they bring in a group of Nobel laureates, like 25, 30 Nobel laureates. And then they bring in like six or 700 young scientists from, from 80 plus countries. And the idea is they're there for a week of mentorship. It's called the Lindau Nobel Laureate Meeting, but it's really about, it's not as much about the laureates as you would think. It's about mentoring the next generation. So for a week, each laureate gives one short half hour talk. But it's not even just about the young scientists learning science from them. And when I say young scientists, there are some undergrads, there's some grad students, there's some postdocs. That's someone who's already gotten their PhD and it's an early career scientist. And they, uh, there's meals. And at some conferences, if people go to a conference, a lot of times the most famous people, the rock stars of any conference aren't very accessible. Like they eat at their own table and you don't get to eat with them. This is... That's not even allowed here. At, at every meal, there's a placard on the tables and it'll have a laureate's name. And every laureate is sitting apart from each other and surrounded by young scientists. So at every meal, it's a laureate surrounded by uh, young scientists. And they ask them not just science questions, but work life. You know, they learn about everything about what it means to be a scientist, um, not just the science. And there are sessions and some of the young scientists get to present their research to other people and to laureates and get critiqued. Um, but it's just this amazing thing that, um, so here's the way my career works. I was asked to be part of a panel at a big science conference. It's called AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And I was on a panel about communicating science with humor. And I was on a panel and I also had about five or seven minutes at the podium where I demonstrated how I do my kind of humor that communicates science, but is also funny. And I, there was someone in the audience that I impressed, um, Countess Bettina Bernadotte, and her father had been one of the founders of this meeting in Lindau. And she invited me to perform at the upcoming meeting a few months later. So here's the other thing about the meeting. There are three Nobel Prizes in the sciences. There's a physics, a chemistry, and a medical medicine physiology. So the meetings rotate. That year was a physics meeting. And at the physics meeting, so it's like they invite 600 physicists from 80 countries. And, and most of the laureates are physicists that year. And I was invited to perform at the opening ceremony. So I did about 15, 20 minutes. The president of Austria was there. Some, a couple laureates that I recognized, um, including George Smoot, because I had seen him on Big Bang Theory. Um, Vint Cerf was there. He's 
called one of the founders of the internet because he and his partner developed the TCIP protocols that the internet is based on. And I recognized him. And Stephen Chu won a Nobel Prize in physics. Later, President Obama, Obama, (laughs) (laughs) President Obama uh, chose him to be secretary of energy for four years under Obama. Um, So what happened is I performed at the meeting and then for fun, I went around interviewing scientists and they liked the way I was interviewing scientists. So I've been back now three or four more years and they hire me to interview their scientists. And I do live streaming interviews right onto their Facebook page. And I do with the young scientists. And then with the Nobel laureates, I sit them down and I interview them and I edit it later. So this meeting has been this every summer I go and I get to interview and hang out with a bunch of Nobel laureates and hundreds of scientists from all literally this year was going to be from a hundred countries this year was going to be interdisciplinary. They'll do a physics, a chemistry, a biology, and they rotate, but every five years or so it's all of the sciences and there were going to be 70 Nobel laureates and a hundred countries uh, sending like six or 800 young scientists from like a hundred different countries. So you meet people from all over the world and they're all doing interesting. They're all, they've gone through a selection process. So they're all kind of extraordinary young scientists. Wow. That sounds like the, that's just a blast. I can tell from the, by the way you're talking. That you have- yeah. I love it. I'm glad. And this year at the, um, I don't know when our interview is going to come out, but at the end of June, when the meeting would have been in person, I'm going to participate on either June 29th or June 30th online for the Lindau Nobel, lindaunobel.org might be the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting, or I forget their domain. Um, they, uh, I'll, I'll be moderating some online stuff. Well, let me ask you this, Brian. You, you, you've been going there now for a while. Um, someone who I... I see a science guy that I see out there is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's someone that you know and have a relationship. Is he someone that you know from being there at the at the Lindau Nobel Laureate meeting, or is that no, no, no? Because he's not a Nobel Laureate. He's never been. It's like it's very limited. It really is. It's not open to the public. Neil. Oh, okay. But Neil, actually, I don't know how many years ago now. Back when I was in San Francisco, he saw a video of me on YouTube and he went out of his way to look me up and find my email address. He found my website and emailed me to tell me I was funny. He just was just supportive. Hey, I saw some of your stuff and I, he's quoted some stuff. And then I kept in touch with him as you would. <laughs> we had never met, but we were emailing and he invited me to do pieces for Star Talk Radio, his, his radio and podcast show. And every episode was themed. And again, we had never spoken. He would email me a theme. I would write a piece, record it, email him the MP3, and they'd put it in the show. He would do an intro. And so I contributed some little monologues, short monologues to Start Talk. And ultimately, eventually, we would meet. When I, in fact, it was here in Raleigh the first time I met him in person is that he was coming to speak. And so we met in person for the first time after we had already had a long relationship that was all email. I I think that's a neat thing about our world is that 
I had been on his radio show numerous times uh-huh. and it was all done via email. I, I wrote and recorded my piece at home. I emailed him the file. They put it on the show. We had never spoken. And yet I had been on his show a bunch of times. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And now uh, he comes to Raleigh or the Durham. He comes here almost every year. And I've been in town almost every time. So I get to see him. And now I've interviewed him a couple of times. I did a long Skype interview with him once. And then one time I visited him at his office in New York. And we did a live stream to Facebook. That was fun. In fact, uh, for those that might see video, what's on the wall right behind me right there? Yeah. We were doing a live stream from his office and people were watching and Neil goes, what are these people doing? It's the middle of the afternoon. Shouldn't they be in school? Shouldn't they be at work? Why are they watching? And he goes, you know what? I'm going to write them a hall pass. So what this says is Brian Mallow live interview hall pass, and then it's dated and signed. So he wrote a hall pass and he held it up to the camera (laughs) so that people could screenshot shot it. And um, that's, and, and I just, I thought, oh, that's a neat little piece. And I took it home and framed it because it's like, it's my little, it's my little Brian Mallow live interview hall pass. Man, when I was in high school, the hall pass was always something that I wanted to get so I could get the heck out of class. Right. That's around in the hallway for a while and screw around for a while. Now, so you are, you've become over the years friends with Neil. And, the, you know, something I wanted to address with you is, I have a similar appreciation and, and fondness and love for for science as well. Have you thought about like um, what might be sort of the science of comedy, the intersection of really brilliant science, like science, comedy? And tell me about that. Do you have over the years, you must have contemplated that. Well, I think that's interesting because, you know, it's like the comedy of science and the science of comedy. So uh, I like it because, you know, I have that kind of analytical mind. First of all, if you're a comedian, you have to learn something about the art and science of comedy, like how stuff works. But um, but then I'm also a science geek, so I'm really curious. Now, I know there are theories of humor, and I need to learn more about this, but I think it's a very mysterious thing. Like, what what theory of humor explains puns and slapstick and you know there's like some humor it's like well what's the connection between a pun a a play on words and really slapstick humor and other like there's like those things like seem like what is humor and like those two things don't even seem very alike but um did you what did you mean so i like thinking about this and but but all comedians have to practice this to some extent because we have to figure out why it's like that joke isn't is there how do I make this joke work better and sometimes it's like well you know an old comedy friend of mine Ron White the first time I worked with him which was at a club in not only it was in New, New Orleans it was Metairie which is and this was a long time ago that was the the exact place where David Duke came from um and I had this old joke about Zomfir, master of the pan flute, which he used to be a very common TV album you would see advertised. And I had this joke where I said, and here's how I used to say it. I'd go, you know, in the commercial, they only show Zomfir from the waist up because he actually is half goat. He's a mythological creature. And it worked okay. And and Ron told me, so here's the science of comedy. Ron told me that I needed to remove one word from that sentence. I was saying 
he actually is half goat. And he said that actually, first of all, it's not necessary. He also thought it was telegraphing. Like I was saying, actually, before I was getting to the half goat part and that I was sort of telegraphing the joke, I was giving it away a little early. And he said, remove that word. And I did. And the joke worked better so that I would just go, they only show him from the waist up because he is half goat. Like saying actually gives people a little more time to think about where you're going. But instead of you go, they only show him from the waist up because he is half goat. Um, boom, it hits you. And then that's the punchline. So um, that another example is an old joke I had about being on stage at a sports bar. And there were a lot of dead animals on the wall, a lot of mounted heads. And I said, there's a lot of pressure on you to be, what would happen is I didn't sit down and work on the, on paper, on the writing. And every time I got to the punchline, I would always say, there's a lot of, I would set up this scene where I'm performing and there's just, it's a sports bar, but it's like the walls are dominated with dead animals mounted everywhere. And I would say, there's a lot of pressure on you to be funny when there's that many dead species on the wall already. Well, ending a joke with the word already, even and even it's not even just comedy writing. It's just bad writing in general. It's like the whole point of the, the sentence is already over. And like already needed to be moved. It's like there's a lot of pressure on it to be funny when there's already that many dead species on the wall. Like the punchline is that dead species on the wall. After you say that, you don't want to still be saying already. So that's that's like the science of comedy. It's like that that weakens and 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 again, communicating science and communicating humor and just communication in general. These are all just communication. So it seems a little weird that I even now advise scientists on how to communicate science. But the fact is, it's just communication. And I've been practicing succinct. It may not be obvious from this interview, but I've practiced succinct communication. As a comedian, you have to learn to get that right. Right. Well, there's a, there, is a, there is a structure that's used in stand-up comedy or comedy in general. It doesn't matter what the medium is, actually. It can be audio. It can be video. It can be live. There is a structure that's used regularly in comedy, and comedians, uh, what you do is you, you actually learn that, that shop talk, that argo, that lingo, it, because those terms are part of, the, part of what helps you to create the grammar of comedy, the structure of comedy, so that it's effective. And also, you know, like, you know, to me, one of the things is writing a joke is a bit like an experiment, right? You come up with a hypothesis. Your hypothesis is a bit like, this strikes me, I think this is a funny concept, a funny idea, a funny notion. Yeah. So then what you want to do is you want to actually test your hypothesis. In order to test your hypothesis, you've got to run an experiment. And the joke itself is actually like an experiment where what you do is you put together the experiment, you write the, you've got your premise, then you take your setup, and then you put your plug in your punchline and if you do it really well, then you want to extend the punchline with your tags, right? And I'm always, I, for some reason, whenever I talk about tags, I'm reminded of that Monty Python bit where they were tagging things out like two, five, 10, 15 times just to the point of absurdity. And it would go from being funny to not funny to then funny again to not funny to funny. But that's to me is 
is comedy is a kind of, uh, it, it has qualities that are similar to yeah. something where you've got your hypothesis, you run yep. your experiment, you structure the experiment, which is the joke. And then you also make sure that you are mindful of where the environment that you're in. Okay, is am I structuring this joke for Twitter, like Blaine Kapach, or am I structuring this joke for uh, a film or a television program, or for an audio thing that I'm sending in to, to Neil? And, uh, and then you test it, right? You, you actually yeah. you test it. And then the interesting thing about it is it what gets really important for a comedian, is it replicatable? So Yes, yeah. as you go around the country to completely different groups of humans and, and test it again. So you're looking at, you know, those essentially are the basic steps of scientific method where you've got a hypothesis and then you put, you construct your experiment, you test yeah. the experiment, and then you actually bring it out to the wider community and you, you do it over and over again to replicate it. And I've found that, you know, like for me, when I write a good joke um, and when I can replicate it, that's really something. And then, of course, there are times where I have uh, watched other people do my material or have given my material away to other people. And that too is a bit like, well, okay, I want you to go run the test and see if it's if it can be re- replicatable. And I, I all of a sudden, one of your old punchlines that I really uh, that I remember and loved. It was about, I guess you know, we both talked about some about decriminalization of drugs, and you had a joke about marijuana be about how it's been used for so many thousands of years and you go and you would say, I don't remember the exact setup, but I remember that it was basically about cave paintings. And it's like, like these earliest humans, they were painting their walls with pictures of food and you go, and, and you, but I just remember the punchline. You've got to be a high kind of hungry to go after a mastodon with a stick. <laughs> Do you remember that? I I know that that is the precise sentence. Like I remember that that punchline, even if I don't remember yeah, the setup that's, completely. That's the other thing is that when you when you are when you're you know wordsmithing or when you're crafting, you could say that a totally different way, and it wouldn't have the same impact. Yeah, there's a there's a kind of there's a specific kind of poetry or a poetry. Uh, comedy is a kind of poetry in, in itself too, right? Yeah, yeah. That phrase, a high kind of hungry, is not a typical phrase. It sticks out. It, it grabs your attention. And then the minimization yeah. to go after an Amazon with a stick. or Yeah. And Willie Mammoth with a stick. And like I was saying before about like sentence structure, if you had said uh, – to go after a mastodon with a stick, you've got to be pretty stoned. Or something. it's like it just right. it wouldn't it like the funny part is is saving that going after a mastodon with a stick. And there's also we also know that some words like the punchiness of that word stick is helpful. Right. And you never some of this it's hard to predict or like, but we get a feel for for, for what works. And you know, similarly, since I am a comedian, sometimes telling scientists how to communicate with the public. Um, who am I to tell them? Well, I draw a lot of lessons from, from comedy. And I also think that there's other similarities. Like, um, we are always looking for fresh... We start with an observation. I like to quote the Isaac Asimov uh, line um, that uh, the most exciting phrase to hear in science the one that heralds new discoveries is not Eureka, but that's funny. And I like it because 
That's how a joke starts. And it's how a scientific observation starts. You see something and you go, that's funny. What is it? And you have to figure out how do I express that and make it funny? I, I see some little thing and I know there's something funny about it. And I have to find a way to communicate that to you. And, so, and also, if it's already been well covered by other comedians, it's not of use to me. And if this research has already been done by other scientists, they're always looking for original scholarship. So are we. And, and, a, and a, a joke has a setup and a punchline. And the setup has to have everything in it that you need to appreciate the punchline. But, and this is what I tell the scientists, just as important, it can't have any extra extraneous stuff. Because that doesn't add to it. It waters it down. So scientists sometimes put too much information in their talks. and adding more information does not help. Like you think you're helping by adding more interesting information. And sometimes comedians have a joke and they start adding more to it and it doesn't actually improve the joke. It ruins it. You want everything you need, but nothing more. Right. What's the Einstein quote where something must be uh, simple as possible, but no, but no simpler or something like that. Yeah. That I used to, I, I agree. You, you, in comedy, it's well. It goes back to that other that other quote, which I believe is Shakespeare, which is "brevity is the soul of wit." That's the thing for me is that that uh, I love the performing arts and the arts in general. And there's always there to me the arts and sciences are not really that far apart from one another in so many ways. If you go and look at, um, I, I have a book that I read uh, many years ago by uh, the philosopher Ken Wilber, and it's called "Quantum Questions," and it's such an interesting book because. In that particular book, um, he uh, finds passages from the writings of world-renowned scientists, uh, particularly a lot of these physicists, quantum scientists, and that sort of thing. And you can see that they have this truly artistic side to them, almost some of them, almost a mystical side to them. And um, uh, Niels Bohr is one of them. And I mean, the list goes on in the book. But I find that the arts and sciences are not that far, not as far apart as we are often led to believe. Another Einstein quote, um, imagination is more important than knowledge. Um, you know, sometimes people think, I've mistakenly, I will not say this again. I, when I talk about the path, I chose, I didn't choose, I was thinking of becoming a scientist. Um, one way that I humorously say it now is I go, I thought about becoming a scientist, but apparently that's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to actually take the classes and do a, I just thought about becoming a scientist. That doesn't do it. Um, but I thought about it, but I instead, and one time on stage, I accidentally said, I thought about becoming a scientist, but I instead chose, uh, I wanted to take a more creative feel. It's like, that's terribly misspeaking scientists are very creative. There's a lot of creative thinking, like to be a scientist, like Einstein, he imagined some stuff that no one else had. Imagination and creativity are definitely, so what I really, what I meant to say is I chose the arts. I didn't take the science path, I chose the arts path. But that is not to say that science is not about creativity and imagination yeah. and good writing and communicating because you have to not only make observations and learn things and, and you have to invent some of the creativity is like you have a hypothesis, like you said, how can I come up with an experiment to test it? Okay. I have a hypothesis. How do I test it? It's all about creative thinking. So you're right. There's 
huge overlaps, and also bad stereotypes about scientists. In my experience now, scientists are way more knowledgeable about other fields outside of science, whether it's the arts, history, philosophy. Scientists tend to be knowledgeable about that other stuff way more than those other people are knowledgeable about science. Like, it's acceptable in our culture to be like, well, I don't know much about science. But it's like not as acceptable to, to say things like, well, I don't know much about history or, or good writing or literature, you know? Yeah. Well, Brian, you know what? I, I want to ask you, um, this has been such a lot of fun talking to you about science and comedy today and how they, how, they, how they actually are different, yet how they converge as well. You're doing such really interesting work. I want to, I know there's, there's probably some folks who would like to know more about you if they want to find you somewhere on the web. Um, where can you be found? Where can you be tracked down for more of your, your uh, science comedian missives? Yeah, I'm pretty easy. With the phrase science comedian, you can't miss me. You can forget my name, but science comedian. Um, I My website has been untouched for years, but sciencecomedian.com. I'm going to do something about that. But um, I'm on Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. And um, I'm going to be more, you'll be able to find more stuff uh, on Instagram and YouTube. It, you know, since we are no longer doing personal appearances, since that was another day, another age, a very dark time when people used to gather in person to listen to people like us. Um, <laughs> I'm lucky that I have these video skills and these interviewing skills. So for an organization called Sigma Xi, that's xi.org, I've been interviewing virologists. And these aren't funny interviews. These are just interviewing virologists and presenting information. Um, I edit them. I, I interview them like this, and then I edit them and, and put them out. And I'm going to be doing more live streaming, and it'll be on those chan- my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash science comedian. And uh, you can look for me on Twitter and Instagram, at science comedian. Brian Mallow, thank you so much for being here today. I am Robert. Thank you. And you've been listening to The Robert Barham Show. This has been another episode, and I've been talking to my very good friend, as I said, Brian Mallow, the science comedian. You and I will be talking again, I hope. I hope that you'll come back on the show. And I'm going to put a little, uh, a little lead in there. When you come back again, I want us to talk about push-ups of all things. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's right. I feel like we could have had a a better conversation than the conversation we had, maybe. I don't know. I love the conversation for today. But we'll definitely get into the the art and science of push-ups. Brian, thanks a lot. Thank you, Doc. We'll see you soon.